This is the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. Today, teaching minister Tim Peace will be teaching the message. I was thinking about my message this week. We're going to go into James chapter 4 today and, and the subject matter of it. And so I want to open up with a confession. Uh, today is a special day in the city of Cincinnati. It's Steelers week. Anybody? Yeah, it's Steelers week. We have to play the Steelers. We've lost 10 times in a row to them. Why? All right, so here's the deal. Okay. I bring that up for a reason. I am typically a lover, not a fighter kind of guy. I'm a gentle soul, mainly because if I got into a fight with most people, I would lose. But otherwise, I tend to be pretty, like, low-key. But when the three-hour window of the Bengals versus Steelers comes on my TV screen, a flip, the, the, the switch is flipped for me. Let's just say that colorful phrases come out of my mouth when that game is on. To give you the more clean version of them, uh, let's say that the pass rush is going after Ben Roethlisberger. Do we have a pass rush right now? Not sure that we do. Anyway, uh, when they're going after Ben Roethlisberger, things like rip his head off or break his knees come out of my mouth almost naturally, as if like they're suppressed deep down and piled on high with niceties. And you know, I was thinking about like why is why is that that like that that sort of thing happens? Well, I'll tell you why. Ever since I was a little kid, I have been a Cincinnati sports fan. Now, my first live sporting event, yes, those exist. I can't wait for them to come back. My first live Cincinnati sporting event was a Reds game. And my family and I, we were in the red seats in the old Riverfront Stadium. And guess who the opponent was? The Pittsburgh Pirates. I tell you that because, for me... Pittsburgh will always be the enemy, whether it's baseball or football. But given the history between the Bengals and the Steelers, and admittedly the one-sided history of it, there is just something that gets within me when I watch the two play. Why? Because I want my team to win. And for some reason, all of my, my desire to be good and to do good to others flies out the window when my desire for the Bengals to beat the living snot out of the Steelers comes into play. And I just shout it from the rooftops. You know, we do that in life. We want our team to win. Uh, We want things to go our way. Uh, We want to get what we want. And so suddenly all the things uh, that normally make make us up as people people that genuinely want to do well, people that want to genuinely be a light to the community, when these moments arrive for us, our guard gets dropped, and it's like we become somebody else. Like, I don't have to say too much to know that we just came through a political season that we have every four years where this happens, right? Especially online. We all turn into little keyboard warriors, And all of a sudden, phrases like, I'm going to own the libs, 
comes out. Or if you're on the other side, I'm going to collect MAGA tears. There's a little mug picture that goes around. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this. Maybe you've participated in this not-so-witty banter. But what it sounds like is we're partaking in six greater insults toward each other. Why? Again, because we want badly for our side to win. And so we say things that in normal commonplace conversation with our peers and our family members and our friends, we wouldn't even say if this particular subject or this particular moment had not arrived. I don't know what's going to happen with Black Friday this year, but I know because I am not a good person, I love watching uh, Black Friday footage on the news. I don't like to watch the news, but I do like to watch that. Because there's nothing like watching Grandma truck over a 40-year-old to get to the new plasma TV. I don't know if people are going to be able to gather to do that sort of thing this year, but it normally happens. Why? Again, because we got to get that deal. i got to get what I want. And my inhibitions and my morals and my integrity fly out the window just so I can get that one thing to make some family member who already is able to buy what they want anyway happy. Now, I'm happy to report that as I look through Scripture, we are not the only people that deal with this problem, both in our modern context and in history. I always like to tell people, if you want to know what the problems of the early Christians are, just read your Bible. Because of the same things that the writers like Paul and Peter and James and John all have to write about over and over and over and over again. The reason that those things get written about over and over and over again are because those are the problems the church can't seem to get past. And that problem I just described on an individual level how it can easily turn into somebody else, given the right moment, given the right goal, the right desire, or whatever. The same things happened to the early church. And we're going to find that out as we look to James chapter 4 today. Now, just to give you a quick recap of James, because we've been in this series for a while. Uh, James was the brother of Jesus, and well, the half-brother of Jesus. And he was also a leader in the uh, Jerusalem church early on. Uh, But as he starts his letter, he calls himself a servant of our Lord Jesus Christ. He considers being a servant to our Lord uh, his highest esteem over and above all the other accolades that he could claim for himself. And it's really key because that idea of being a servant to God is prevalent in the whole story as James tries to repeatedly remind his hearers that faith is proven by our deeds. We show our faith in our works. That's what James says over and over and over again. And the major way to live out those, that faith, to, to do those works, is to serve others and to be servants of the Most High God. And so in chapter 4, after James has talked about all these different ideas, he turns his attention to the church, and i got to admit, it's the most brazen and, dare I say, hot James gets when he's talking to his hearers. We're going to see the language he starts using to the people he's writing to. It ain't brothers and sisters anymore. He says some not nice things here. And there's a reason, because he's hit the point where he's addressing this one conflict that is caused by people chasing after their own desires. 
and their own wants and their own needs over and above others and over and above God. So I want you to follow along with me here as we read James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And then we'll talk about it, and I want to leave you with one idea here. So he writes with a rhetorical question to start it out. He says, those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Adulterers, do you not know the friendship that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for nothing that the scripture says God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives all the more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. Whoever speaks evil against another or judges another speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. So who then are you to judge your neighbor? Now again, James is getting pretty fiery in what is an otherwise really fiery letter in our New Testament. And as I like to remind people, oftentimes when we read these passages, um, we see the word you as if, as if James is, is pointing to you and me and, and as individuals and saying you, 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 you. But in the context of the early church and in these letters, the you is always plural. As I like to tell people, it's like James is saying, this is for y'all. I'm telling everybody in the congregation this. This is not a problem with one or two individuals. It's a problem within the church body. The, the New Testament writers are always concerned with the body of Christ, the church as a whole, and not just individuals. But individuals make up the church, and so uh, one person, two, two people sins, uh, kind of like, rot out the whole. The church is not supposed to put up as a whole with this kind of stuff. And so he writes to the whole uh, what he has to say. And you'll notice there's some pretty bad stuff going on. Now, I'm not really sure if James is talking hyperbole here or if there's a literal murder going on, uh, but apparently these people are living after their own wants and desires so much so that it's creating quarrels and even killing amongst one another. Like, we don't like if someone says something kind of mean to us. Like These people are coming together and hurting each other. That's just not a good situation. I wouldn't want to be in that. And so it's not shocking to hear James change his tone for a few verses. 
You saw him revert back at the end of the passage. He normally will say brothers and sisters. He's speaking to the congregation as a whole. But at one point in verse 4, he calls them adulterers. That's a good way to insult people. Why does he do that? Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament prophets, this is pretty common language that the Old Testament prophets use when speaking to the Israelites who have deviated from God's plan. The idea here is that the people of God, um, they, they, they belong to God, He's their God, they're His people, and so uh, to deviate from His path is akin to cheating. And so you see the prophets use this language, and James, being a good Jewish Christian, the leader of the Jerusalem church, is picking up that Old Testament prophetic language here and speaking now to the church in the same way that the prophets spoke to the Old Testament um, hearers when, when, when those were being written down. And he's doing that because they are putting themselves not only above others, but they're putting themselves and their wants and their needs and their desires over God himself. They have deviated from their calling, and James is letting them have it. So he addresses them as adulterers, and he basically tells them, hey, if you want to live like the world, if you want to be part of the world, if you want to be friend of the world, you are becoming an enemy of God whom you claim to be faithful to. But he calls them back. He reminds them that God not only gave them grace, but sent his spirit so that we could walk in step with the spirit and live life as we are called to do and not in the way that they are doing. He calls them back to, to repentance in this passage. And he reminds them with a proverb, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And this idea of the humble ends up being where he takes the rest of our passage. What does it mean to be humble? Well, first of all, uh, humility, as my friend Didi, who's normally here, would like to say, humility is when someone has a, a right recognition of where they stand. They're not too high, they're not too low. They know their place, they know their lane, and they stay there. They don't think themselves better than other people, but they also don't play the false humility game where they beat themselves up and act like they have no value, because of course the people of God have value, God sent his only son for us. If we weren't valued by God, he wouldn't have done that. So humility is really recognizing uh, who you are and, and, and not thinking more highly or even more lowly of yourself than you ought to. But in the original language, in the Greek, the connotation goes even further because the idea of the Greek word is someone that puts themselves in a more lowly position, and more specifically, James has in reference here that people that are humble, that humble themselves before God, put themselves as lower than God and as less than or less important than their fellow believers. And so what does James do? Well, from there in verse 7, he gives them all of these imperatives. He says things like, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, 
and God will draw near. He's got a play on words happening here. He's, he's telling people, if you resist the devil, the devil will go away. And if you draw near to God, God will come near, which is what you should want. You should not go after the worldly and the devilish things, but you should want uh, God's rule in your life. He then goes on and he says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. And then he follows that with lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Now, why would anyone want that? Well, here's the reality. If this church, if the people of the church, if, if we today are leading our lives based off of what we want and putting our wants, needs, and desires over and above God and over everybody else in life, and if that becomes what our life is all about chasing after, well, if we give that up, what's naturally going to happen? We're going to be a little downtrodden, right? And that's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, this may hurt a little to lose what you've been going after. It may hurt a little. It'll sting. It'll be a loss. Be willing to feel the loss. Be willing to have this joy in this other stuff that's inconsequential be taken from you in favor of the grace and the work of God through the Spirit. That should be our goal, even if it brings pain to us. And then he ends in verse 10, he says, to humble yourselves. So that's the last imperative. And then he, he qualifies this by reminding people that those that, that speak uh, judgment uh, over the heads of other people, they're basically putting themselves in the position of God. And he says there's one judge and one lawgiver, and guess what? It ain't you. It's God. Say, so get off the throne. And then he ends with a question. He's got this, this kind of how dare you attitude, or this who do you think you are attitude. He says, what gives you the right to judge your neighbor? It's pretty heavy-handed stuff here. And so, so James is calling people uh, away from this selfish ambition and toward the way that God wants them to be. And the reason for that is not only because that's what's best for them, but chasing after what they're chasing after is creating division in the church that Jesus wants to be united under his kingship and lordship. Did you know that in the Gospel of John, in chapter 17, Jesus prays over his earliest followers, his disciples that are with him in private, but he extends that prayer for the church for all time, including you and me. And do you know what he prays for? He prays that the church will remain unified. Clearly, Jesus knew what was up. And all of his followers that wrote books and letters in this book we call the Bible, they're still dealing with people not doing what Jesus prayed for. And guess what? So are we today. So it's a funny thing. Uh, I told you about my, my hatred of the Steelers at the beginning. So my friend Craig shared a podcast with me and my friends Arlen and Aaron, and we listened to this together. Uh, well, separately, but we talked about it together after the fact. And it was this guy that does disciple-making and, and teaches, teaches people how to uh, share their faith and make disciples in the workplace. It's really, really good information. And I, I can recall listening to it. I had my earbuds in. I was taking some notes along the way. 
And suddenly the guy revealed something that made me drop my pen in disgust. Turns out, this guy does work with players from the Pittsburgh Steelers, and specifically Ben Roethlisberger. What? Actually, I think Arlen was actually more annoyed by it than I was, but I thought it was pretty not good. And I'll tell you why I share that. Because while it's funny to laugh about that, because, you know, I don't like that team, it brings home a good point. Sometimes when we, when we let our own wants, desires, our own lives be more important than God and other people, it can make enemies between us that ought not be enemies, but ought to be unified in faith. Turns out Ben Roethlisberger, ugh, I can't even believe I want to say this, is also a follower of Jesus just like me. That means that even though I'm still going to root for him to lose today, I might want to back off on the, you know, rip his head off and break his bones language. Because it turns out even though he's on the opposing team of my favorite team, he's on the same team as me. And it's just like the politics thing. We can easily want our side to win and to be victorious and to shout down the other side so much that we forget that, yes, there are followers of Jesus that are part of the Republican and Democratic parties. Shock. Yeah, I know. Isn't that crazy? And guess what? Because of their having the same Lord and Savior and King as us, we are on the same team, even though we can easily turn it into a competition where hate and vitriol spews out of our mouths or comes out of our fingers on the keyboard. So look, I'm not telling you this morning to have a new favorite team. Please don't be a Steelers fan. We, we have some in here, I know. And I'm not telling you that you have to drop uh, your, uh, your preferred political party, although you should watch out who your allegiance is with because it better be with Jesus. And I'm not even telling you it's bad to have a nice TV. Just don't truck over a four-year-old on your way to get it. The point that I'm really trying to make this morning is this. In our own world, it's easy to become little kings of our own little kingdoms and think that we are the most important thing in the world. And that's the thing that divides the church. So remember this from James. Don't be a king. Live for the king. Don't be a king. Live for the king. There is nothing you can aspire to be. There is no thing you can go try to get. There is nothing that you can desire to be victorious in that takes the place and precedent over Jesus and his mission in this world. Nothing. And when you, when you misunderstand that or when you lose sight of that, that is when the church becomes divided. And when the church becomes divided, know that you and I, those that cause that division are railing and running against the very prayer that Jesus had for his church and the very thing James is using such hot language to combat. What James calls us to do and what we should do as a church 
is to truly repent, to recognize that we are not little kings of our own little kingdoms, but that we have one king, one Lord, one Savior, and we owe him our allegiance. And when we all do that together, we become a united church. I believe Jesus is the hope of the world, and I believe he desires a united church to go out and make disciples of the world around us, to be a light in the community, not to look just like the rest of the world around us. The world that we live in is divided. The church that resides in this world ought not to be. And that's what James calls us to. So don't be a king. Live for the king. And that brings us to a time of communion. You know, the beauty of taking communion each and every week is that Jesus, Jesus told his earliest followers to take the bread and the juice and to remember that his body was given for us and that his blood was poured out for us. And it's such an easy little phrase to remember. He says, do this in remembrance of me, right? But you know, the funny thing about that little phrase, do this in remembrance of me, why must we remember? Well, we need to be reminded. We're, we're talking about Jesus, the, the person that exemplifies obedient faith, the kind of faith James calls us to. And in this world that becomes so divided and when we can easily lose sight of who we are and who we're called to be and what we're called to do and how we're called to act and speak, it is nice to come back weekly as a church body and be reminded of who we are, what we're called to be, and to recognize that everything that we are called to be is captured in the person of Jesus. Jesus not only gave us life, he is the example of how life ought to be lived. And when we do that, we as a church together achieve the goals God has for us as a church body. So do this in remembrance of him. Take this bread and eat. This is his body given for us. And take and drink from this cup. This is his blood which is poured out for us. Please pray with me. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for an opportunity as a church family to uh, worship you together. Thank you for these moments of communion where we can be reminded of not only what your son Jesus did for us, but how you call us to live in light of that reality and that truth. And so, God, I pray that uh, we will heed the uh, warnings and the words of James this morning and beyond this morning as we go about our lives uh, to not put ourselves above you and to not put ourselves above others, but to be uh, humbled before you and to love others uh, with, with grace and by the Spirit as you have called us to do from the get-go. Help us to do that ever more in this world uh, that is broken, this world that, um, that feels dark, that feels foreboding, uh, where we just uh, have no real sense of certainty and no sense of even when uh, the things we're facing right now are going to end. We may not know the answers to that, but we know one thing is for certain, that you have called us to be a light in this world, 
And we know uh, not only how to do that, but we know on whom we can lean to do that, and that's you. Help us to do that, and help us to lean into you uh, for strength. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. You can find out more about us on the web at mtcarmelchurch.org.